Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening to you. Good evening and a very warm welcome to uh, the Centre for Independent Studies. My name is Peter Curti and I'm pleased to welcome you on behalf of Tom Switzer, who uh, can't be here for this event, but I hope will be here towards the end um, and certainly a little later this evening. I'm a senior research fellow at, here at the CIS in the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society program. It's a program that's about a year old, in fact, and was established with the objective of um, engaging in key cultural struggles in Australia, engaging with key cultural issues. For example, religious freedom, uh, which is one of them. Freedom of uh, speech on university campuses, another, to name two of the pressing issues that confront us today. And the culture program is keen to sort of push out and tackle some of those issues, some of those questions, some of those topics that are, that well, they can be controversial and they can certainly generate a heated response. But nonetheless, we set sail, we set our course and venture upon those sometimes turbulent waters. And we're here, not on turbulent waters, I have to say, but we're here under the auspices of that program to launch this book, Corporate Virtue Signaling, How to Stop Big Business from Meddling in Politics. This book is by my colleague Jeremy Samet, who heads the program, and it deals with one of the surprising but key cultural battle, uh, battlegrounds, the corporate sector, sector that has embraced identity politics and progressive ideology, all in the name of corporate social responsibility. And we see corporates getting increasingly involved in contentious political debates like uh, recognition, which is the next issue coming along the line. And in this book, which we're launching tonight, Jeremy takes direct issue with uh, the, this issue of corporate social responsibility and asks that business should stick to the business of business and stop meddling in politics. But it's not just, a, well, he'll be very pleased to hear you respond like that. <laughs> We're not just about, inter he doesn't just analyze or complain about the problem, as we'll hear. He proposes solutions to ensure that companies do not stray into political debates that, are, that know, know nothing of the, uh, that, that lead companies to stray from the business of business, as I've said. Well, I'm delighted to introduce the two people who will guide us through the issue of corporate political meddling this evening. Morris Newman is a distinguished former chairman of the Australian Stock Exchange, a chairman of the ABC, and a chairman, most importantly, of the CIS some years ago. And he's also an occasional columnist with the Australian newspaper. He is, as you know, a fearless campaigner on these sorts of issues. And I'm pleased to uh, introduce also the book's author, Jeremy Sabat, my colleague, as who I said, is head of the culture program. Well, the evening will progress as follows. I will sit down in just a moment. Then uh, Morris will come to the lectern and speak, and then Jeremy will join him on stage for a conversation, followed by a QA, and a in which you'll be welcome to join in the conversation um, and put your own points of view and your questions to them both. And after that, my colleague Greg Pulcher, who is our Director of Development, will bring the evening to a close. Once again, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the CIS. We're very glad you're here. Would you please now welcome Morris Newman? Thanks, Peter. Well, thank you, Peter, and good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm going to stick to my notes because I've heard me speak before, and uh, I think you'll all want to be home before midnight. But uh, I want to say I really am genuinely honoured to have been asked to launch uh, Corporate Virtue Signalling How to Stop Big Business from Meddling in Politics. It really is a very important and timely contribution. 
And uh, we are all too aware of the mindless acceptance of corporate greenwashing. Uh, the pleasure is even more special, as uh, Peter mentioned, because uh, this is my old stamping ground. The CIS brings back many, many happy memories uh, for me. I was privileged to chair uh, for around 10 years, and I worked closely with Greg Lindsay in those early years. So uh, I have no doubt that uh, the choice that has been made for Tom Switzer to pick up the succession challenge and build on Greg's extraordinary legacy and that together with Nicholas Moore, the new chair, uh, the CIS is in wonderful hands. The author of tonight's book, uh, Dr Jeremy Samad, is CIS Director of uh, Research uh, and Fellow and Director of Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program. Uh, he has a PhD in Australian history and is the author of The Madness of Australian Child Protection, Why Adoption Will Rescue Australia's Underclass Children and contributing editor of The Future of Medicare Health Innovation in the 21st Century. Dr Samet's book shines a spotlight on why the support of big business on social issues like same-sex marriage could just be the beginning of corporate meddling in future political, politically contentious topics. <clears throat> I think uh, we all have examples. We know <clears throat> also that industry superannuation funds have signalled their intention to pursue an aggressive activist CSR agenda. They will do their best to deeply politicise and engage companies on issues such as climate change and industrial relations. This pressure for companies to become political players, <coughs> campaigning for systemic change behind progressive social, environmental and economic causes, is finding voice among CSR activists operating now inside of business. And the more I hear about the push for CSR, the more I am reminded of a chapter in a book that was issued uh, to all employees when I was at Deutsche Bank. The book uh, was issued in, was written in 19, well certainly was published in 1995 to commemorate Deutsche Bank's centenary. And of course in that book is a chapter covering the bank during the Hitler years. Now rather than jackbooted uh, Nazis marching into the head office of German corporations demanding how things will be done around here, uh, an elaborate state propaganda machine was established to reinforce the notion of corporate social responsibility for the higher good. National socialist business people were expected to serve the people's community and naturally no captain of German industry objected. They all fell meekly into line. And promotion within the bank uh, was uh, predicated to some degree on becoming a Nazi party member and following the party line, even if it meant acting contrary to the bank's best financial interests. Now, there are no jackboots in uh, Australia today, but wooed by government incentives and spooked by social media and ethical investors, boards and management are embracing corporate social responsibility with electricity. And it may not be a Nazi slogan, but it is a section in financial reports. It includes a notion of a social licence, a social licence to operate, another term intended to advance the goals of 
sustainability in business practices as determined by the political class. Leading science blogger Joanne Nova identifies two types of, ident of uh, virtuous companies, the badgered and the profiteers. The badgered corporations fear a legal and PR fail if they don't simply pick a number and join the cheer squad. She argues it's so much easier for business leaders, leaders to make something up and keep the activists at bay. Now, they may buy temporary peace, but they also encourage groupthink, reinforce the climate change echo chamber and help silence alternative views, however compelling they may be. The profiteers thrive on the green industry. According to Climate Change Business Journal, journal this industry is now worth something like $1.5 trillion a year annually, and they're US dollars. Add to that the potential carbon market, which is another $7 trillion, and soon you're talking real money. I mean, it's hardly surprising with so much at stake that insurers, investment bankers, renewable energy companies and electric vehicle manufacturers would join the global scaremongering bandwagon. And it's not just CO2 emitters who are badgered. Note how under cross-examination in the Royal Commission witness box, bankers engaged in ritual genuflection uh, and there was absolutely no attempt to prosecute a narrative which put their serious misconduct into context or even to argue the need for structural reform. No, they wanted politicians on all sides to see them as chastened and reformed. They feared the likely damaging regulatory response which awaited them. Moreover, they wanted to ensure that their oligopoly remained intact. So as badgered corporations parading their ethical credentials, all four of the major banks have ceased or reduced their lending to Australian coal projects. And this craven behaviour exemplifies the crony capitalist system which we have created, where economic rent seekers are rewarded according to their fealty to the powers that be. Ayn Rand warned that this is the ultimate inversion, the stage where the government is free to do anything it pleases while the citizens may only act by permission, which is the stage of the darkest period of a human history, the stage of rule by brute force. Now, Jeremy Samet highlights how we are getting ever closer to this dark period that professionalisation of CSR has become a recognised field of business management. He highlights the emphasis placed on mainstreaming and integrating social responsibility within normal strategic and commercial operations. That is, they get into, into uh, corporate planning, they get into the human resources departments. And he highlights that the emphasis placed on mainstreaming and integrating social responsibility within normal strategic and commercial operations. And this is how companies are being politicised without any need to change the law. He argues that critics who ignore the cultural context of this movement fail to understand the importance of culture. But he also acknowledges, and I quote, that the expansive view of the socially and environmentally responsible business practices, which many companies take today, reflect 
left-wing progressives, again, I hate that word, values and beliefs that are in the cultural ascendancy at this time. Jeremy also makes the point that today, left progressive, progressive activism, activism <coughs> excuse me, and act advocacy is more organised, better resourced and purposeful. It knows what it wants and it knows how to get it, including by shaping the CSR agendas of business. He says, improperly regulating self-regulating societies, individual and institutional actions and behaviour should be shaped in the public interest by established norms and values. But as he continues, for corporations, this is a question that calls for the exercise of sound commercial judgment by companies and by senior managers who are all responsible for corporate decision-making. The growing soft-left bias of corporate leaders makes middle management easy prey for hard-left vigilantes like Sleeping Giants and GetUp, who use spurious consumer complaints to demand companies pull their advertising from blacklisted media outlets. So this is intended to bully those right-wing outlets into removing the offending broadcasters from the airwaves. And Sky After Dark has been a primary target. Peter Drucker, the man who invented management, would claim good business has always been about building trust with your customers, about... Uh, making them focus the focus of your enterprise. You don't do that by virtue signalling or becoming surrogate politicians, but by keeping faith with your customers through the delivery of quality services and products. Cultural sensitivity is not about being politically correct. It's about observing respect for your customers and ensuring that you don't alienate them through insensitive advertising, packaging or through political messaging. Seizing contested moral high ground may play well for directors at uh, networking shindigs or in the media, but it doesn't come without its risks. The now infamous Gillette advertisements, scolding men for toxic masculinity, have, been a have had a spectacularly negative effect on the brand and on sales. According to a YouGov survey, the ad took Gillette from seventh in a list of 45 health and beauty brands to bottom. So while Gillette may have generated tens of millions of dollars in free advertising, the brand has suffered considerable damage. Paula Dwyer, the chair of gaming giant Tabcorp, embraces the notion of, corp of uh, global corporatism. Jeremy Samet uh, quotes her as saying, the community is demanding more of their business leaders and expects them to model behaviour which is constructive for all society. The role of commerce has to be balanced with the role of companies in the community and part of that is how people behave, act and what they value. Now, well-meaning, no doubt, these sentiments are eerily reminiscent of similar views being prosecuted in Germany in 1936. Uh, author Jeremy reminds us that Ms Dwyer is not alone, 
that influential business forums like ASX and the AICD lean heavily to her point of view. And this denies the long-held opinion that under the Corporations Act, the, the uh, primary responsibility of companies and directors is to, uh, uh, managers and directors, is to, ch is to shareholders and to maximise profits. And that begs the question as to whether the pursuit of CSR is legal. The courts have decided directors and managers are lawfully able to exercise a considerable discretion in this area and still lawfully fulfil their fiduciary duties. So what are the boundaries? As Jeremy points out, the overtly partisan nature of the unions and industry super funds and their CSR agenda underlines the importance of finding an effective way of ring-fencing companies from politicisation in the name of CSR. He correctly states that because of this, Australian companies are more vulnerable to be led down the political path of a social licence and that winning the odd battle over ASX corporate governance guidelines will almost certainly be re-prosecuted re in the war. So those who genuinely wish to curb the role of CSR should support introducing into the language and the practice of corporate governance an institutional framework and, set a, uh, and a set of ground rules which Jeremy calls the community pluralism principle. As he says, this would not restore a golden age where business is business was business, nor would it uh, of itself guarantee that CSR activities are limited to legitimate parameters. But at least if the corporate pluralism uh, principle was included in company constitutions at the initiative of a new kind of anti-political activism, it would send a powerful message about corporate meddling. So why this book is so important is that Jeremy Samet has put his finger on the basic issue, which is the hyper-politicisation of society. It's not just companies, it's everywhere. And it means that today, everything is political. The role of companies being just one of them. Individuals and organisations are now compelled to take a stand uh, in support of some new orthodoxy. And woe betide them if uh, any of them dissent. Of course, companies are under, under pressure from multiple interests to comply with the new CSR imperatives. Yet in by becoming political, business leaders exacerbate the society's hyper-politicisation and fewer and fewer of them are prepared to stand up and push back. Now, the choice is to pursue the alternative path of choosing to remain in part of a civilised society, which Jeremy argues is what the community pluralism principle leads. And to quote him on that, he says, by promoting respect for the perspectives of all members of the community, the community pluralism principle would only protect fundamental rights and traditional freedoms of speech, it would also ensure that Australian corporations respect the only kind of diversity of political opinion that ultimately matters in a liberal democracy, the diversity of political opinion. That is the foundation of a free society. Now, if, a corporate, if, a cor if corporate Australia wants to continue down the road uh, that the path that it's currently on,
It will prove Vladimir Lenin right, who said, when it comes to hang the capitalists, they will sell us the rope. So I commend corporate virtue signalling, how to stop big business from meddling in politics to you. I hope you all buy not just one copy, but many copies, and distribute them to all those people in business that you know. I commend it uh, to you, and as I say, it should be required reading. And having commended it, I declare it launched. Thank you. Uh, before I recall Morris to the stage, I'm just going to say a few words about the book and elaborate on some of the themes that Morris has mentioned. But firstly, of course, I would like to thank Morris for doing me the honour of launching the book. I would also like to thank Anthony Capello and Connor Court, the publisher. Um, Connor Court and Anthony continue to punch well above their weight in the battle of ideas in this country, and I'm very pleased that he has agreed to publish it. And I'd also like to thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming out tonight, on um, behalf of myself and the Sarah, so I really appreciate it. This is a book that I really stopped writing rather than finish because the whole story of corporate virtue signalling has been an ongoing one this year. In the last few months, we've seen BHP and Rio Tinto become the first major companies to support recognition. We've also seen a group of leading company directors announce that they've formed a new pressure group to try and encourage business to take the lead on the Republic. And as Morris said, we've also seen the industry super funds basically uh, fire a shot across the bowels of corporate Australia and say they're going to use their financial muscle to force companies to endorse so-called socially responsible climate change and industrial relations policies that will basically align with union and Labor Party interests. We've also seen the Israel Falau scandal, about which I'm going to say more in a moment. These developments have really underlined what is the key message, or rather the key warning of the book, and that really is, as Morris has also said, that if the proponents of CSR within Australian business get their way, the kind of political involvement that we saw from com companies during the same-sex marriage debate will be just the start. It's going to prove to be just the tip of the political meddling by companies in social issues that really have very little to do with shareholders' interests and the true business of business. As Morris said as well, I spend a lot of time in the book trying to explain where this has come from. I, I explain the development of this industry, of industry within business, of CSR professionals who are tr constantly pushing companies to do more and more CSR. They occupy the HR, the people and culture divisions, the corporate affairs divisions. They're also very prominent in the major consultancy firms and they basically have an activist mindset and they basically use the idea of CSR as a rubric or a license to play politics with shareholders' money. And their ultimate ambition, which I also document in the book, is to really subvert the traditional role of companies and make them into entities that campaign for what they call systemic change behind progressive social, economic and uh, environmental causes, all under the banner of CSR. I think the concerns that the book outlines have really been further underlined by events in very recent times in the last couple of weeks. In the last two weeks, we've witnessed full-page newspaper ads from a slew of big companies announcing that they support the Uluru Statement from the Heart. This also followed the announcement by 21 investment banks, accountancy firms and super funds that they also support recognition. 
It seems pretty clear to me that this renewed bout of corporate politicking was sort of planned by the CSR corporate operatives in conjunction with the recognition and other Indigenous activists. And it was really done in anticipation of a Labor victory in, at the federal election, given that Labor had pledged to fast track a constitutional referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. In the wake of the Morrison government's re-election, big business, like many pundits and commentators, have really found themselves on the wrong side of history and also discovered how tin their political ear is. So I really hope that the book will encourage, or the election in the first instance, will encourage business to, will provide an opportunity for business to reconsider what they are doing under the name of CSR and that it might burst the corporate bubble that really surrounds CSR. And also hope the book can encourage this reconsideration through the critique that it offers of the current industry approach that is clearly very being very enthusiastically embraced by business at the highest levels. What I think the election has demonstrated and why I think it's relevant to the whole topic of CSR is it really demonstrated the validity of the insider-outsider thesis of modern politics. The quiet Australian's rejection of Labor's embrace of identity politics and progressive ideology has really exposed the cultural divide between you know, so-called inner-city elites and ordinary Australians who live in outer suburbs and in the regions. As I say, what the election result also want to do is burst the insider bubble around CSR, which is the propensity for corporate elites to live, work and socialise with like-minded fellow elites and not to question what becomes self-reinforcing progressive agendas. And I really think that bursting that bubble exposes what I think is the contradiction at the heart of the whole CSR philosophy. Because the standard argument for CSR is that, as Morris has alluded to as well, in order to earn a social licence, it's not enough just for companies to fulfil their traditional profit-making role. They allegedly have to take into consideration their impact on a broader group of, of stakeholders in the community, non-shareholder non interests. What the book basically does is to turn around those standard branding and reputational arguments for CSR against CSR by pointing out what I think the election has now made very obvious. And that is that corporate involvement in divisive social questions in which there is no community consensus among shareholders, among stakeholders, amongst employees, amongst customers, can really have negative brand and reputational consequences for companies that risk acquiring reputations for being political. I guess the obvious example of that is Qantas. When I used to think about Qantas, I used to think it was the airline that was safe, that was friendly and that fed you. <laughs> Nowadays, <laughs> I'm more inclined to think of it in terms of somewhere around the Greens or the CFMEU. <laughs> the book therefore argues that because CSR can actually be bad for business, corporate leaders should really be encouraged to take a more hard-headed approach to the issues. However, the challenge, however, here is that, you know, for those who work inside the corporate bubble, those who want to push back against the CSR trend can really incur professional and social risks if they, you know, are seen not to be on board with progressive agendas. So I, th I think, and this is a challenge that the book outlines, is how do we counter what is a really you know, well the, the really well-established doctrines, structures and momentum of the CSR industry that is now virtually institutionalised across business. What I therefore argue is, as a solution, as a way to curb uh, 
the CSR activities of companies is to introduce, as Morris has said as well, into the language and practice of, a, of, a, of corporate governance a new clarifying principle that would overtly qualify the existing CSR philosophies. And I've called this the community pluralism principle and I just want to read out the operative part of it which states, it is important that engagement on social issues cannot be perceived to distract from companies' core missions, duties and accountabilities nor negatively affect its brand and reputation in the market of opinion in a political sense. It is a matter for boards of directors and other corporate decision makers to manage these risks by ensuring that companies respect and reflect the pluralism of Australian society and remain open to the views and values of all employees, customers, shareholders and stakeholders across the community. What the book argues is, is that if this pluralism principle was inserted, say, into the Australian Stock Exchange's corporate governance guidelines, this new requirement for companies to properly respect the pluralism, the different views and values of the community, would hold company directors and other decision makers accountable for ensuring that CSR doesn't escalate into political meddling. I suggest that the pluralism principle could be voluntarily embraced by company directors as a way to protect the reputations and brands of their companies. But the book also suggests that given what we might call the denseness of the corporate bubble and given the potential repercussions for challenging progressive agendas inside business, that the pluralism principle might need to be taken up by shareholders or shareholder organisations or maybe other activists and community groups. If it was voted on at annual meetings and inserted into company constitutions at the initiative of what I've tried to describe as a new kind of anti-activism by a silent majority of shareholders who are fed up with the diversion of company resources into political activism, this would allow the quiet Australians to, to send a really powerful and potentially bubble-busting message about ending corporate virtue signalling. As I look around the room, I notice there are a few people here who work in the corporate sector and what I've really tried to do in the book is try and put myself in your shoes and try and think about what might actually help those who are working in that environment who might want to push back against the CSR trend and recognising that in this case there will be an inevitable internal management struggle over the CSR direction of your companies. And my thinking was that a counter-institutional framework and a new set of ground rules like the pluralism principle to explain decision-making around CSR means that those who want to push back won't have to fight necessarily on the merits of a particular issue with all the risks that entails of being seen as unprogressive, but just generally be able to refer to the need to ensure companies remain non-political as a general principle. They wouldn't have to say, therefore, you know, progressi progressive issue A is wrong for X, Y and Z. They just have to say that <coughs> uh, issue A is political and with you know, political being something like a boo word and therefore something the company should stay out of in, the, in order to uphold its requirements under the principle. I also hope the book might give corporate leaders some insight into how to deal with another big issue in CSR, which is how to respond to institutional investors that try to use companies to drive their political agendas. And I'd suggest that the language of, of the pluralism principle, or language of pluralism in general, could really provide a, both a shield and a sword to uh, reject the attempt by some corporates. And let's face it, corporate leaders aren't are neither moral seers nor philosopher kings who try and use CSR to force business to undemocratically usurp 
the role of politicians, parliament and the people in determining social and economic policy. So the book spends a lot of time, understandably so, trying to tell business why CSR can be bad for business. And for good reason, I think, because too much of the debate with inside business is dominated by industry insiders with a vested interest in you know, promoting corporate virtue signalling. However, the overarching issue that the book is trying to address is the one that Morris identified, which is this hyper-politicisation of society and what CSR is contributing to that. And I define hyper-politicisation as this idea that everything is political, everything from the air we breathe to the phone company we use, and that, yes, all individuals and organisations are meant to take a stand on these issues by basically embracing identity politics and progressive ideology. And it's this belief which is threatening you know, fundamental freedoms and, more importantly, the mutual respect of everyone's rights that is the key to a democratic society. And it's not just in public companies, but it's happening in schools, it's happening in universities, it's happening at the ABC. And ironically, all this is happening in the name of, so of promoting so-called you know, diversity and inclusion. And I think the implications of this have really been spotlighted by sacking by Rugby Australia of Israel Folau for the post he made on Instagram about um, quoting a Bible passage on Instagram that is seen to have violated the, uh, the sponsor's diversity and inclusion CSR agenda. I think that the, the sacking of Folau for expressing his Christian face really illustrates this hype, th the effect that CSR is having on corporations by hyper-politicising them. I think it also demonstrates the implications that this has for civil society and its key institutions. I think that companies like Sporting Codes should be places where all citizens can overcome their political and other differences of views and values and come together for what should be genuinely public and inclusive purposes, be it playing games or, or producing wealth-generating goods and services. Unfortunately, business is now caught in this vortex of hyper-politicisation because CSR is forcing it to endorse the views and values of only some employees, shareholders, sh uh, stakeholders, customers, while alienating and worse, those who don't share progressive views and values. So the choice really facing business, and this is the point I'll end on, is that does business want to divisibly contribute to further hyper-politicising hyper society, particularly as, as what the specta English spectator journalist Toby Young has called the woke corporation, establish what are basically corporate inquisitions in order to, which are basically political tests dressed up as employment criteria, again in the name of diversity. The alternative path, which is where I really hope that the community pluralism principle will lead, is for companies to remain part of a truly, genuinely civil society and be truly inclusive by reflecting the only kind of diversity, as Morris said, which matters in a, in a democratic society. And that's the diversity of political opinion and religious opinion that we should all be free to have. Thank you very much. Firstly. Okay, sure. So before I turn it over to you, I just thought I'd ask Morris a couple of questions just to kick it off while you're forming your questions. One of the things when I was writing the book that struck me is that I was really unaware of CSR really until 
the same-sex marriage debate. And then when I went back and looked at it, I found that it had a much longer history, which the book goes through. You uh, left the ASX chairmanship in 2008. Was it this bad before and we didn't know it, or has something changed in the last 10 years mm. that's brought no, this on? It's stealth. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was the chair of ASX pushing back on a number of initiatives. And what happens is government comes along and says, look, if you don't agree to do this and put this in your listing uh, manual, then we will legislate. My view was always let them legislate. But in fact, they didn't have to do that because business or the ASX in, in that. But this was not just ASX acting unilaterally. It was agreed broadly that this was a better course <coughs> rather than have government mandated. And so this is a slippery slope that we've been on for so long uh, and it's gathering momentum. I want to pick up the idea of, of um, industry funds using their financial muscle. And I just want to read a quote which was by the former uh, West Farmer CEO, Richard Goida, and he said recently, Interestingly, as a CEO, when I would go and see shareholders, including superannuation, they want to talk about how the company was going and performance and outlook and investment. Now that I'm a non-executive director, I spend more time talking about remuneration, climate change and other factors. Now, I think we can interpret that in a number of ways, given that he is uh, now chairman of Qantas and the AFL. M but my book, <laughs> my, my book, basically deals with the cultural side of CSR, trying to explain where the industry came from. But uh, I guess that's the cultural entry point in the same way you just spoke about the relationship between government and, and business. The other point here is the commercial entry point, which is through investment funds, basically forcing companies to invest in certain things to meet with what are- Or not invest. Or not invest based on international guidelines. Yeah. It seems to me this is really where the rubber hits the road in terms of shareholder interest because there is no transparency about the true costs of what is being done and what is not being done in the name of CSR. No. And uh, it's corporate, uh, it is global corporatism <coughs> where these views and attitudes are imported and brought to the board table as being something that we should do. So we won't invest in coal mines or we won't invest in coal loaders or because coal, according to the industry funds, is something we should have nothing to do with. Now, that doesn't go to what the business case is. It's simply to say we should shun investment in this area because, uh, and of course the banks won't lend us money anyway, but it means it, it becomes a, a very narrow uh, uh, perspective of where do, you sp where do you invest the money? More particularly, I think, what I find amongst uh, businesses these days is that they are spending an inordinate amount of time on governance. They're not looking at strategy. They're not looking to the future of the company. They just want to make sure they get the activists off their backs, they get uh, the politicians off their backs, and that uh, they can go to the AGM and it'll go through smoothly. And uh, that's basically what they're about. It's not about strategy and making more money. It's about, uh, uh, I don't know whether buying off is the right word, but certainly uh, placating the forces which are trying to direct them in a particular way. So are they spending too much time on CESA or are they spending not enough? Because the argument always is that they're 
ticking boxes and they're swamped by board papers. Oh, they do do they see this as unimportant or are they not seeing it as important enough? Are they just ticking it off? It's the CSR stuff. We tick it off and we go on to more important things. Well, I think that uh, some some directors, some chairs, chief executives may have a, a personal view. I think we know that in relation mm. to Qantas and we've seen it in some other companies. But basically, I think the companies are concerned of ensuring that they don't get into trouble. So this is where the, the focus is. It's not about whether if we invest in this should... Because the time frames are condensing. And as a consequence, it is unproductive and ultimately is going to lead to lower returns for, for businesses and shareholders. What... Let me put it this way. You would think the people who've climbed to the highest pinnacles of business would be in a position where they would have a certain cultural capital or an, and be in a position to provide the sort of leadership that might be able to guide business. In why, why not? Business people don't push back. They just acquiesce because it's the least line of resistance. And when I go to Canberra and I'm looking, and particularly, I mean, uh, what Joanne Nova, when she talks about the profiteers mm -hmm. in the climate industry, well, of course they, they want to uh, earn their stripes in, in Canberra or wherever the taxpayers' funds are going to be directed because if they start to rock the boat, the likelihood is they're going to be uh, set to one side. So in that sense, you could argue that, uh, that uh, CSR is playing... Uh, is, is a financially profitable thing for them to do. But ultimately, it's going to be to their detriment because what it means is that government becomes ever more powerful. And it may well be at some point that government is going to tell them something that they don't like and they're going to have to swallow it. So, but the fact is that, uh, in my experience, business leaders are being promoted these days on the basis that They've got the values of the of whatever it is that uh, is is the current uh, topic of the day, whether it be uh, climate change or um, the reconciliation or whatever it is. Uh, that commends them to some form of promotion. And I'm sure that actually takes place within the organisation itself, not just at board level. Hyperpoliticisation, indeed. Yeah. Do we have some questions, Richard? Gentlemen, I couldn't agree more strongly with everything that you've said, and I think it's a terribly deleterious development for Australia, uh, and, and you've described it well. However, let me say that I think that business is not involved in politics as much as it should. And many in this room may have read the article in The Australian yesterday where they were comparing the, what it was years ago, and Morris, I bet you remember this very well, where people like, uh, somebody like Hugh Morgan, for instance, who uh, uh, was always in the media and always having a say on the conservative side of the way in which government policy should be, public policy should be developed. However, who can suggest in this room of, of business people who've got up wanting to advocate, not about the nonsense that you're talking about, which is not in many cases in shareholders' best interests, but about the development of the best public policy for the economic, social and environmental development of Australia rather than its restraint. Yeah, well, I think... Uh, yeah, here, here. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, business people 
are now bending with the wind and are not standing up for what is sensible policy. So if there's a policy which, for example, uh, if, if it's a question of tax, they've, they've, they're virtually mute. When it comes to a whole range of issues which are detrimental to, to uh, corporations, they are mute. They may go down to Canberra and behind closed doors say, look, we don't like the way this is, this is heading, you know, what, what can we do about it? But they need to take leadership in the community and stand up for values and principles. And we are not doing that. And I think this is a slippery slope because essentially it means that we are conceding more and more. And of course the next step will be that what is currently a voluntary uh, CSR, there will be a move to make this legislated. I've given you the red meat tonight, but there's actually more nuance in the book than you might, you might expect. And I try and draw, you know, what is the you know what is legitimate CSR. Sometimes companies should do CSR. It actually makes sense to address the environmental impact of your of your business before you get the government involved, and that's in the interest of the company, in the interest of shareholders, in the long term financial future. I also make the point that in terms of you know companies being political, sometimes again in the interest of shareholders, they should be speaking out on political issues that are relevant to things like the business environment, uh, opportunities for investment, the exact issues that you uh, talk about. The problem is, and we've another example I could have given of the moving story here is that we've seen uh, the business. Uh, members of the Business Council of Australia be targeted by activist groups and trying to force companies to not be involved in the BCA because of, I think, basically climate change policy. And again, this is where we are at, that um, companies are at the mercy of activists and of their own CSR principles that they've all embraced. And unless they can find a way to push back and draw the appropriate lines about where what, what is appropriate CSR and inappropriate CSR, the sort of problems you are seeing and you're talking about are only going to get worse. Next question. Brad. Shouldn't we try to tackle this what's a problem at what seems to be its source, which is well, at least one of its more significant sources, which seem to be these industry super funds, which seem to be more and more controlled by trade unions and have become a vehicle for advancing their agendas. When according to a statistic I read in the paper today, in the private sector workforce, they now represent less than or about 10% of the, the private sector workforce. Can't we do something about the governance structure of these funds to reduce the control that trade unions seem to have over them? Well, well I was going to say, but what they're pushing is ethical. So therefore, it's all accepted as being in the best interests of the company and of the community. The problem also is that there is a collectivization of superannuation, um, particularly more recently where it's becoming increasingly difficult and as a consequence of the Royal Commission will be even more difficult for individuals to run their own superannuation fund or for small superannuation funds to exist. Therefore the default will be to go into a large industry fund. So they will become even more powerful and they will continue to pursue the agendas of the left because, as you say, that's essentially where they come from. I don't know enough about that particular issue to comment and as a think tanker I always like to only talk about things that I, that I understand. But I would just note that the book is very 
cautious about suggesting that the answer here is to look to government because for the reasons, as Morris has mentioned, there is this push to make it mandatory. And I fear that if there is, uh, I'm not saying this applies particularly to that issue, but in general, if there was a push to say, we know we need to have legislation to stop government, to stop companies virtue signaling, I fear that that would be counterproductive and that would actually kick along the movement to actually make it mandatory. So trying to get less, we'd actually get more in the end. Uh, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. No, good, no. I was just going to make the point that I think in the broader community, there is a growing recognition that what they are observing is this global corporatism mm -hmm. where government, big government, big labour and big um, business are all coming together in a very unhealthy collaboration and that they are being left outside. Mm -hmm. So when they look at monetary policy and fiscal policy and a whole range of other policies, they see this as going to the elites and the intelligentsia and that they are being left behind. Mm. And I think what you've been seeing in Europe in particular in recent years, or certainly in recent months, uh, is a serious pushback. I think Trump is uh, an example of that. Yeah. And when you look at Nigel Farage and his success in, uh, the, the, uh, with the Brexit party and the Euro election, which was uh, just a few weeks ago, his party came from nowhere. It didn't even exist until April. Uh, and he's won, I think it was uh, uh, nine out of 12 regions in Britain to go to the European Parliament. Now, that was a clear repudiation. I think the, the Labour Party lost something like 17% uh, of, of its uh, base to, to uh, the, the Lib Dems and another uh, group went to, to the Greens. And the Conservatives had their worst election ever since 1843. So uh, I think people are saying, we've had enough of this. We think this is a closed shop and we're excluded. Now, how that ultimately plays out, <coughs> I don't know. But I think the more that companies are out there uh, uh, virtue signalling, people, particularly when this sides with the sort of mm -hmm. the trendy view, the general electorate is beginning to sense something is afoot and they don't like it. Which is why I'm amazed at the decision to still press the button on the recognition stuff after the election. It's, as I said, it's tin-eared. And it's like, so the big end of town thinks it's going to mob up and force recognition down people's necks. Is that really good for the reputation of business and company brands? Uh, Peter Swan. Let's go back. You, you mentioned the history of, of, the, of uh, the ASX Corporate Governance Council. And actually they were the ones who, who paved the way for CSR because they deemed that shareholders had no right to, to be on company boards. Uh, they said that um, significant shareholders were non-independent because they, they re represented shareholders and therefore they were non-independent. It was a ridiculous, still there in, their, in the ASX governance platform. Fortunately, uh, they were convinced temporarily, at least, not to go, not to mand mandate the social license. But they've already done the really dastardly deed of excluding shareholder interests of every board in Australia, except through the if not why not provisions allow some representation. But then, as you were saying, the governor stepped in through APRA to put into law. Uh, th this exclusion of shareholders from company boards. Uh, and that's why, of course, the Royal Commission was into the banking sector, which is governed 
uh, buy in the area which where, if not, why not doesn't hold and therefore uh, shareholders are excluded from having a s significant role in, in bank boards. Peter, I think it's a good point. And one of the... Th I mean, what, what seems to be coming through to me is that we are moving to a stage where shareholders are becoming almost irrelevant, that uh, the decisions are being taken elsewhere, certainly when it comes to the collective shareholders, such as the industry funds, they have, they have an influence which is more directed within the boardroom uh, because obviously the boardroom knows that they've got the voting power to push things if the board doesn't uh, the board doesn't agree. But uh, when you see what has happened with the the banks in particular, you wonder why we don't just simply nationalise them because they've got uh, the they've got the regulator sitting in on the board meetings. They've got uh, they're in there all the time. Uh, I mean, if if you go through what banks are now required to do, uh, banks are being told who is acceptable to serve as a, not even on the board, but who's acceptable as an executive, you have to wonder in the end, you know, why do we have shareholders, why do we have management, why not hand it over to the regulators and nationalise it? Thanks, Jeremy and Morris. Um, I'm no fan of corporate social responsibility or its excesses or, or the, the social activists, but I think we've got to be terribly careful not to set up a straw man. The argument that they make is a lot more clever than a lot of us give credit for, and they've co-opted the traditional language of fiduciary duty so that, so that the argument the activists make is actually that corporate social responsibility adds shareholder, shareholder value. Yeah. They, they actually say you have to do this to make money for shareholders. It's, it's a smart argument. They're right on to the point. So for example, you know, coal mines. You, you're right, Morris, banks don't like financing coal mines. That's because the activists say you can't finance a 20-year coal project when who knows whether coal will be saleable in 10 years. Similarly, you know, all the diversity projects, there are bucket loads of studies by McKinsey's and others that support those. So they're right on to those points. It, it's, a, it's a subtle argument, um, you know, and I think we have to be careful yeah. not to in undersell the book, it. I make that point very much that basically where this Morris talked about the mainstreaming and the integration of CSR into you know um, into 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 business planning and you know strategic decision making that's exactly the point I make they have used the language of risk management you know in the in the wake of all the financial crisis risk management has become the new black in you know in company management They've exactly what you said. They've co-opted all that and said, you know, we must, you know, we must manage our financial risks through this CSR agenda. And look, I have a, in, as I say in the book, I have a certain sympathy for that. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes there are commercial imperatives that should drive CSR, where you should take into consideration the broader group of share of, of stakeholders. But what it has become, it has become this industry that has justified. Uh, involvement in political issues that have no bearing on what I call the business case 
for CSR. So I do try and take a very balanced approach. But what I'm also trying to do is to take the other side of that. And I guess Morris's example of of um, Gillette is the good one, which is that you know the company brand and reputation. And in this case, it gets has financial implications. Now, what I, I what I I don't really want to see companies. And this is what I'm this is what I'm trying to avoid. Is where when we make decisions about which phone company we have, which airline we fly whatever, we've got to make a political decision. And, and it, do we really want to be in a world where the only way we can stop this is if we damage the financial prospects of companies? I don't think that's the world we want. So my answer to all that is just to say, well, let's just face political reality, which is that these issues are political. They will have negative impacts. And let's try and avoid that and try and keep companies part of a civil society. Could I just make one point, John, in relation to that? Of course, there may well be uh, a, a coincidence between what activists are saying and what may well be in the best interests of shareholders and the corporation. However, it seems to me there is not enough internal rigour mm. when it comes to pushing back on these arguments because there is plenty of empirical evidence to show the activists are plain wrong, that it is based simply on ideology. And ideology has no place, in my opinion, uh, when it comes to how an, an organisation, and certainly a, a corporation, should be directed. Uh, thank you very much. Ben McDonald, look, an, an anecdote, an observation and a, a question. I recently went through, not mandatory, but unconscious bias training, and the first slide said, uh, don't believe everything you think. So what I'm about to say, I don't believe. Um, on the question of Qantas and the share price, I think it's a good one. I didn't know myself, so I quickly looked it up whilst you were speaking, Dr. Salmon. I apologise, but Qantas is tracking at about its highest point in the last two decades. So there's some sort of feedback loop there where they're, they're encouraged to keep on, on, on this journey that they're, they're on. Uh, so perhaps there is an argument against uh, pluralism from, from commerce, and I'm sure there's plenty of other examples other than uh, the Qantas. But are we, is the game set too narrow when we're focusing on how to change the behaviour of uh, corporations, given that they're populated by citizens? They're ultimately just you know bunches of us under the under the banner of of a, of a you know a legal entity with, a, with their own charter, uh, and that if we want them to behave in a manner that is more cohesive and. Uh, uh, supportive of the objective of a pluralist society that d does Ramsey Centre and this is my question, does the Ramsey Centre have it right in, in focusing on educating uh, the citizenry of, of the nation and, and other countries which ultimately are the, are the people that, that guide these corporations? Well, yes and no. Um, I actually think that the bubble, the corporate bubble is actually smaller than you think and that actually in the corporate world it isn't as monolithic as we might think it is well, or we might present it is when I just talk about insiders and outsiders and elites and ordinary people there are lots of people within the corporate sector who are Christians are you know vote liberal don't subscribe to you know green progressive views don't believe in identity politics but the problem is that the co internal culture of companies has become intolerant like many institutions and unfortunately the left is very very good at playing the politics of moral embarrassment over these issues so if you if so what i hope and this is what i was suggesting when i said about you know, trying to think of what this would what the pluralism principle would mean in practice for people who work I inside these uh, 
inside these organizations, it would give them a framework and an external point of reference to say, look, you know, this is not what we are required to do or should be doing as a company. And there are, are, are these good reasons why we shouldn't. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to confront the progressive politics, but also diffuse them and just leave companies as companies rather than as, you know, political activist groups. I mean, the Qantas situation, uh, simply because the share price is doing well doesn't necessarily mean it's a consequence of their, their, their politicising same-sex marriage or anything else. Uh, it may have something to do with a competitor that's not doing as well. Um, and well, few prices, obviously. Uh, it's, uh, but also, you need to look at the relativity between Virgin and, and Qantas. I suspect Qantas is doing better. But that said, uh, this is not a reason why corporations should get involved in politics. Now, if BHP, uh, well, BHP is involved in the, uh, the uh, Uluru uh, Declaration and wanting to push that, that's fine. I suspect it won't do much to BHP's customer base one way or another. But the question is, should they be involved in those debates uh, from the from the lectern of the corporate uh, AGM or through advertisements or, or however they want to prosecute their argument? My view is they should stick to business and leave the politicking to others. James Ford. Uh, this is probably more a practical question. I agree with everything you've said. However, the ideologues in general don't change their sense of moral certitude unless they feel a degree of pain. And in, in this environment, you've identified a large amount of pain that corporations may feel if they go against the left. At the moment, we need to ask the question, do you want to win? And when I say if you want to win, are you willing to inflict a degree of pain if they don't stop going with the left? And so I go straight to the point that Jeremy dismissed, not, um, which is the question of boycotts, um, other sorts of embarrassment, um, simply because it is the only way of inflicting a degree of financial pain which may otherwise change business behaviours. And we've seen that to some extent that that's been successful, you know, almost a reverse sense in the United States where companies which have been attacked on the basis of their positions have actually increased their sales um, because people have decided to support them because they were attacked. So it, this is, it, it's just a question, and this is a practical question, um, whether or not you get more traction or the, the degree of polite exhortation that you've mentioned is sufficient. Yeah, uh, I'll take that one. Um, I agree that at the, at, at the present time, it's only happening at the margins. There'll be some people who feel strongly about these issues that will say, you know, I'm not going to fly Qantas or I'm not going to bank with that company. But what I suspect, and I think this has been reinforced by the election, which is that politics abhors a vacuum. And I think we've seen, particularly over the in the last election, the beginnings of a mobilisation of particularly religious groups, politically. And I think that um, if okay, I'm going to be polite again and say uh, if business doesn't take my, good, my take my gratuitous advice, I think we will, could see a situation where they suddenly do find themselves being the, the objects of activism by conservative groups, religious groups, 
and my the way I frame this for corporates is, you know, what do you want to have on your desk? Like it's okay now to sort of tick off on progressive issue A, but if you know the other side abhors the vacuum and gets involved, and suddenly you're meeting delegations, you're actually doing real politics. Is that really what they? Is that really where the corporates want to be? So, I think that if nothing changes, my my belief would be that you they will actually get that pain. So the question is whether they want to take a bit of preemptive self-regulation to avoid it. Um, if, if tomorrow I was to um, have a conversation with an, any millennial I run into about hyper-politicisation of society yep. and corporate social responsibility, <laughs> I think two things would, would, would be true. First is that I'd be talking to the people who've drunk the Kool-Aid on this more than anyone else in our society. And secondly, they would have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. Do you think that some of this, we, there should be some strategy towards pushing into the younger generations about some of this stuff? Well... Yes, uh, but of course it starts at school and then it goes on to university where none of this would be, uh, would be uh, acceptable to be taught. I mean, we've got the problem now with the Ramsey Centre having uh, being able to establish itself uh, in an Australian university. I mean, the concern I have is the one that I expressed earlier. That is that we've got this very unhealthy oligopoly that exists between labour, government and business. And it's a self-reinforcing oligopoly where government tends to make policies which are likely to hold that oligopoly together. Uh, so long as the people in business comply with the direction that the politicians and the others want them to take. And at the end of the day, if you continue down that road, then you have surrendered the... the First of all, you will no longer have a capitalist system and you will no longer have the sort of freedom that all of us in this room uh, uphold and, and, uh, and wish to see uh, in, in perpetuity. I would agree with that, but I would add one proviso to that view of you know, millennials. And we had Michael Stutchbury here for a book launch last year and he gave what is the standard line, which is that all these young millennials want to work for these companies that you know, have progressive views and values. And I actually think that's wrong because what happens is they go into the, their you know, first meeting job interview with the HR department. The HR department says, well, what's your attitude to diversity and inclusion? What are you going to say? You're not going to say no, are you? So it becomes this, it's become this defective feedback loop. So I think people play the game to a large extent. And I, you know, millennials have got a, a lot of bad rap, but I think that you know, they have diversity within, them, within their own views and pluralism. And so I think... That might be that view is overstated. Uh, one probably time for a couple of questions. Uh, comment, comment, and a question. Um, it's as I think was alluded to earlier. It's not just corporations that are travelling down this path. A couple of years ago, during the marriage debate, the New South Wales Bar Association came out in favour of change. I wrote to the then president, pointing out that the members hadn't been consulted about this that it had nothing to do with the welfare of barristers or the uh, judicial system, uh, that uh, having a debate about the topic might be uh, an appropriate thing for them to do. Of course, I didn't ever, ever get a reply to the letter. Uh, the, the comment or the question is, um, 
I'm wondering if it's one line of attack might not be that this uh, involvement of corporations in issues which are not directly affecting their businesses is simply undemocratic. Mm -hmm. Corporations don't have a vote. Individual persons, citizens, have a vote. Why should corporations be listened to on a topic which has nothing to do with their business? Simple as that. It's just undemocratic. And that's a word that I think resonates with the general public. And if it's hammered home again and again, well, I'm asking you, yeah. might make some difference. One of the arguments I run very strongly in the book, which is that this is allowing you know, corporate oligarchy, let's face it, to make economic and social policy and usurping the role of the democracy. I think it is undemocratic and I think it should be that sort of behaviour should be, should be called out and called out for that, exactly that reason. Maybe Could I just make one sure. point to that? What, what shareholders should be doing is to say to chief executives and chairs who come out and use the company brand to back them in a particular social issue, that this is not acceptable. Mm. That the company brand, the corporate brand, is something we own mm. and you do not have a licence to steal that brand simply to push your own barrow. And I think, I think the sporting codes are a good place to start because those brands have been built up through years and years of, surf, of service, of unpaid service usually, by generations of people. And suddenly, people who are temporarily in charge are using it often to burnish their own personal reputations rather than promote the good of the code or the game. Sorry, just one final question before we go to Greg Polchers, that guy over there. Just quickly. Yes, um, my name's Sam. Um, I look forward to reading the book actually and uh, it's probably a question that will be answered in the book um, but briefly I guess it's appropriate that a millennial um, also ask a question, <laughs> another one at least, um, yeah um, and uh, somebody that's also been subjected to um, unconscious bias training um, which is an interesting exercise. Um, my question is I guess in relation to that also as a um, new legal professional um, I, I'm interested, I guess, with um, policies uh, that I think are based on false narratives um, like unconscious bias and that sort of thing, policies that tend to address those, especially with things like gender quotas and, and um, uh, ethnic diversity quotas, that sort of thing. How does the plurality principle um, intend on actually addressing those institutionalised HR policies that people like myself who... Um, I guess we're trying to sort of make forge our careers and that sort of thing. We're faced with things that being a white male um, will probably tend against us yep. um, when we're sort of just trying to do our best. I would say that I think that is the, one of the key issues and I think that, you know, obviously as you're talking about, one of the problems here is that the the corporate sector has embraced the whole idea of board diversity and, you know, gender equity on the board and that's really started the rot throughout the rest of the society. I guess my pluralism principle is oh, through, through the institutions and changing the merit principle and creating exactly this sort of you know balkanisation that we're seeing around identity politics within organisations. So I would really, I guess the, you know the plural, pluralism principle by hopefully getting business out of this you know business of identity politics would help with that. But I would also, as a general rule, what we really need to turn to is I'd I always quote. Um, George Orwell about this, which is that he says that you know, 
a lot of left wing thought resembles people playing with fire who don't realise fire is hot. And I think exactly the sort of resentments and bitterness and concerns, and that should really be that that needs to be driven through the through internally within the organisation, because they are degrading the culture, the egalitarian culture that all businesses and all institutions in society really need to thrive, where people feel they're being treated, treated fairly as individuals, not as ideological categories or gender identities. At this point, I'm going to draw the evening to a close, but first I'm going to invite our development Director of Development, Greg Porsche, to the stage to say a few words. Thanks, Jeremy. No worries. Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, while uh, both of you were speaking, I was thinking about the first time that I had heard uh, CSR. I was at a company function right after college. I was uh, speaking with some millennials, because I am a millennial, sadly. And they talked about CSR, and I had the smart idea that I would push back a bit and uh, uh, question them a little bit more about what they were talking about. And I can't tell you the utter shock that there was in the room at that point, in the little circle that we had. And um, long story short, I really failed at networking at that event <laughs> right off the bat. But, um, but here I am now, and I think it really just shows that um, where we all think alike, no one is thinking at all. And I think the discussions that we're having, like tonight or with Maurice and Jeremy, uh, are so important in this. And there's still so much more room for debate out there and so much more room for discussion. And I think everyone, round of applause, thanking Maurice and Jeremy. Thank you so much.